It's day 478 of Trump's presidency and the show is dealing with Me Too. People have opinions and are all too eager to have them heard. It's kind of like this podcast. Meanwhile, we have resolution in the shooting of Adrian Bozeman and Kurt finally puts his cards on the table to determine the future of his relationship with Diane. Speaking of Diane, after an ill-advised trip into the back of a late-night laundromat, she meets a group that will change her life forever. Women aren't just one thing, and you don't get to determine what we are. Gather your legal briefs and put on your fighting togs. This is The Good Fight SBS Fan Podcast. It's our weekly discussion about the TV show The Good Fight. It's our deeper dive into the show, and we explore the real-world stories that influence The Good Fight. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm an editor of one of the SBS websites here. It's called The Guide. We talk about TV things. Joining me each and every week is my good pal, my friend, my buddy. It's SBS Life Deputy Editor, Sarah Malik. Hi. Hey, Sarah Malik. First of all, important business. Is going down the dark passage of a late night laundromat ill-advised? No, I think it's fortuitous. I think it's one of those things where, you know, everything has a reason or a meaning behind it. It's like a metaphor, you know, even the detours or the things that seem ill-advised can actually open up what you're really meant to be doing. But in the intro, you said that it was ill-advised. Are you maybe breaking the illusion that I'm the one that writes the intros? Look, there might have been there might have been some shared work there in the intro. Look, I've just input my little two cents there. I think that it was a fortuitous trip. You maintained ill-advised, oh, no, and I now we're, we've come to a happy kind of disagreement on that, which is basically what this podcast is, isn't it? A happy disagreement between both of us. Yeah, largely. Yes. And then the two of us go off and then sit next to each other at work all day. <laughs> I was like, Dad, I can't believe he has those opinions. Oh my God. <laughs> and Dad's like, whoa, Sarah, she's off the cliff. And then we just go on our merry ways. Yeah, usually. I mean, usually most work it. days is, hey, Dan, can I borrow your USB charger? <laughs> and then it's met with me handing over my me USB. Photoshop. <laughs> Yeah, largely. Uh, But, you know, I think it's ill-advised to walk down the hallway of any laundromat late at night without knowing what's at the other end. I think it's worked out well for her in this instance, Mm. but it also could have ended very badly. There was something kind of quasi-spiritual about Didn't you feel like she goes into this, you know, here's this thud. I thought that it was going to be a crime scene. You know, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. She goes down this little corridor and kind of meanders into something and the insistence of the woman who's like, no, you're going to come back. There was something about it that was um, destined, shall I say? Okay, well, let's talk about the Diane storyline in this one. So when I saw that, what kind of threw me with the beginning of the episode And it was a mixture of the way that it was uh, filmed and framed and just the quietness of the scene as well, because there was no noise really taking place. No. And it actually reminded me of an episode of the X-Files revamp from earlier this year, which has got a very similar tone, where it's this late night thing with Mulder and Scully at this late night sushi restaurant, and things just get a bit weird and strange. But it's kind of like this very ominous tone. And while that show, like for the duration of the episode, which this amazing episode is like the one good episode from this season. Mm. Okay. But like, it just kind of had that same sort of vibe to it where it was like, you don't really quite know what's going on because it didn't really quite feel like TV. TV has incidental music and background noises. Whereas this was really just Diane taking this dark walk into a laundromat because she had a 10 minute wait for her Uber car. And she did that thing, which we all see on like the map as we wait for an Uber car to turn up, where you're looking at it going, oh, it's two minutes away. And then it takes that, that side trip. And If it was my, yeah. I, I know that if it was me, my, my charge, my phone would be dying. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, please come Uber. And so American as well, right? Like 
whenever you think of a laundromat, don't you just automatically like think, oh, this is not something that we experience here. It's such an American thing. And, and also I was thinking I need to get a washing machine. That was also <laughs> what I was thinking in this episode. Where do you do but your laundry? I just, I do it at other people's houses for okay. now. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> Look, my washing machine broke down like a few weeks ago, but I don't like going to the laundromat. I just feel like, why am I paying for this? Like, it just seems really cold and anonymous, you know? And so, and I think that's why they're good scenes for crimes in American law shows, because like there is something kind of automated and machine-like and, and sad about them. I think the anonymity is a very important thing for a laundromat because yeah. the last thing you want is a sense of familiarity with everyone while you're washing your personals. Yeah, like there's something about it where you just don't want to talk to other people, like being in an elevator. I think yeah. the laundromat has an elevator vibe. It's like, don't look at me. I'm in my sweats. I'm just doing my thing. I'm doing my chores. Yeah. Just, you know, mind your business. When you're in a room with someone else who can't afford a washing machine, <laughs> the last thing you want to do is look at their underwear. No, but I mean, I can imagine that conversely, it could just lead to so many. It's such a good beginning of a rom-com, isn't it? It's like, you know, I meet you, like, hey, it's oh, are associate. these your undies? Mm, we okay. do associate laundromats with one of two things, either grisly murders or <laughs> rom-coms. <laughs> I know, it just seems like completely at like polar ends of the spectrum. Yeah, but that kind of worked for this scene. So she walks through this laundromat to get to this... I'm not quite sure what code of martial arts they were mm. engaged in. But anyway, she goes through, sees this martial arts taking place. And suddenly for me, like, this is one of these moments where Diane suddenly clicked... So for a lot of her journey we've seen as a character, from the good wife through to the good fight, guns have been a major part of her life. So she's been a dyed-in-the-wool liberal. She doesn't really like guns at all. But then Kurt McVeigh enters her life, and he's a, uh, what do you call it, a ballistics expert. And so guns are a huge part of his life, and he introduces guns into her life. And she saw guns and the power involved in a gun as something which, you know, she can actually control that. And it's that idea of, yes, guns can be incredibly violent in the wrong hands, but they also give immense power to someone who's actually wielding that gun. And so Diane had to like find that conflict in her life where she was trying to reconcile those two sort of ideas in her mind. But I think that when she comes through and sees martial arts here, and there's that amazing line from the lady running the class where she said something like, you don't think you've got the time for this, but you absolutely do. Mm. And I thought that was a fantastic line to sort of encapsulate that thing that all of us feel where you see something which is kind of appealing to you, but it's so far removed from your experience that you don't really want to throw yourself into it. So you make excuses for yourself. You're like, you know what? I don't have time today. I don't have time to go and join a gym. Like that's just something that other people can do. It's too much. However, like she's ready to make that excuse so that it's like this thing that is clearly appealing to me, I don't have time for this at all. But the lady calls her and says, no, you do have time for it. You just have to make the time. It becomes part of your life then. Yeah. And it does. Like Diane starts doing it. But I thought martial arts, like it actually replaces that sense of empowerment that the gun was bringing into her life. Mm. And at this phase in Diane's life where she's looking to find her inner self and build that internal sort of power from what she actually knows that she has but doesn't really have a way to exert it fully, like it seems like this is actually the way to do it. And if you look at the guys at the beginning, because it's so quiet and you've got this elegance of the way that the martial arts are taking place, it's not a brutal um, activity. It's not something where people are overtly using their power for dominance rather than just exhibiting their power. This is Diane Lockhart. Like, this completely defines her and her approach to the world largely when she is in control of herself. So I thought this is a great way for her to go and do that, to take that power back. There's definitely a lot of themes around fear and power and in empowerment in this episode. And can I throw a spanner in the works? Oh, please do. <laughs> okay. You know, I love Diane, right? Yeah. 
But what is like, that? Where are you going with this? I know, I know. Look, I'm just gonna say it. Like, <laughs> maybe it's just where I'm coming from, you know. But it just makes me vaguely uncomfortable. Like, rich white lady with a gun. Like, I just there's something about it that just doesn't sit 100% well with me. And I just there's been so many stories in the news about white anxiety and white fear <laughs> and how that has led to people, you know, brown and black people at Yale in a Yale dorm room or getting a mentos or um, like just doing innocuous things and being kind of punished and being subject to violence because of triggering white fear and white anxiety. And there's something that I do find really troubling about that, you know, and maybe as an Australian as well, you know, I just, guns just, it's it's, it's terrifying. And I think in any hands, you know, when, when you have that kind of fear and that kind of environment where um, there are certain people in society who do have more power than others, what is the outcome of that? You know, like who ends up getting away with things and who ends up getting punished for things? And I do get the female angle 100%, you know, and, and that, that vulnerability that women fear, feel. But also, I don't know, that there's this element of white anxiety too that just was brought to the fore for me for some reason, you know, in, in this episode as well. Look, I know exactly what you're saying. So, I mean, I feel that if I see anyone with a gun, and this comes from an Australian perspective where we see guns never the only time I really see a gun in real life is when you see a police officer go past and you see it in their holster. And I always feel uneasy when I see that. Like, it's not even so much because I don't really have a huge issue with the police. I'm a white guy. I usually live in sort of inner city-ish type areas. Like, you know, essentially I don't really have anything to be wary about when it comes to police. But I still feel uneasy when I see the gun because of what a gun represents and... Yeah, you know, that. See, but I find something interesting with what you said, where you said you feel uneasy when you see a white woman with a gun which obviously has like some very sexist connotations in there. Mm. But I think there's maybe something no, to no, no. that. As in not, not no, no, just... no, I see what you're saying, but I just wanted to, uh, you, you deliberately said white woman with a gun. And I think that this is maybe something we're conditioned to because we see a lot of this in the media. But there's often stories that we hear where people of whom are unfamiliar with, not really unfamiliar with guns, but maybe just uh, using a gun because they don't have the passion for the gun, but rather it's really just something of which they've brought into their life to bring some power into their lives. Okay, I'm misusing guns. And you said about like the anxiety people feel because a lot of shootings happen from people accidentally. Like that's the thing. So, I mean, there's obviously whether we've been conditioned to sort of think about women with the gun as maybe sort of signifying that. But there's probably also something to the idea that men are probably more gun crazy generally. I don't know. And I, women I think, recent years have been taking guns. Yes. So I think guns are new to a lot of women. Oh, uh, definitely. No, look, I, I'm like white people in general, white men, definitely. <laughs> but it's just an added layer. Like when I see Diane, you know, I resonate with her power and her struggle and all of that. But even as Diane says in the end, you know, you can be a woman and you can be many things, right? And so, yeah. you know, she is powerful in so many ways. You know, she's on the top of her game in so many ways and, and, you know, like she she is privileged by her race, even though she has to struggle because of her gender. So I think that these are these kinds of arguments that are happening now in society and in politics a lot more where you can, you know, for me as well, like I think like a lot of the times I'm like, what are you guys complaining about all the time? Like it's a lot worse for a lot of other people, you know, where I just feel like white fragility is centered so much and white fear is centered so much. And what is the outcome of that? You know, where I'm coming from, I just feel like it makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm like, you know, she's someone who's powerful in the law. She's not someone who's going to get locked up for, I'm not, I'm not expressing myself I, I think there's, there's other things she can be concerned about though than just being locked up. I think it's that general sort of anxiety of, particularly in Chicago, which notoriously has a high crime rate. Mm. And also a lot of the mythology around Chicago is based heavily around crime. 
So I mean, one of the big things with Chicago is, you know, mobsters and Al Capone and all that's kind of built into the sort of framework of thinking about Chicago as a town. But it's just interesting thinking about Diane because you said that her privilege kind of comes from her uh, like race and ethnicity. But also, I mean, don't forget, she's a educated woman who comes from means. So, I mean, it's not just a privilege coming from race. It's a privilege coming from all manner of things. I think it's very rare she has to deal with anything other than privilege. Which is related to your race. Like, that's related to each other. Like, the fact that she is wealthy and is able to get to the position that she has is also her race contributes to that, you know? Um, Now, I I just want to move on a bit more specifically about the episode. And we can talk about Diane's privilege in every episode of this show because it certainly exists. I hate doing that because I really do love Diane and I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of stuff. But for this episode, that just kind of struck out at me a lot, like that centering of her fragility and anxiety in light of what's happening in the news. Well, let's talk about this in the framework of this episode. So towards the end of the episode, you've got the woman who's responsible for the... Uh, what's the name of the website? It is Arseholes to Avoid. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that website in just a little bit. But I want to talk about a specific scene with Diane because we're on the subject. And it's that moment where the publisher of that website starts calling out Diane saying, look, I see where you're coming from with your second wave feminism and really attacking her. How did you feel about that? Because I um, feel there's some very pointed comments there that I want to put a pin in and come back to in just a moment. I really like the episode because I think it was kind of delving into some of these generational arguments that are happening, you know, within kind of feminist circles. And you saw that around, you know, the New Yorker article, the cat person article. Um, I don't know if you saw it. it was yeah, a, everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. It was like, it went viral and it was, you know, it was huge. And it was a story about, you know, this girl's bad date. And it was, again, that blurry line between what is just uncomfortable or a or a not a great date situation and when I does mean, it, it wasn't veer even a date, into it was illegality. a relationship. It was a relationship, yeah. And so um, the story exploded and there was uh, the kinds of divides that you saw were definitely generational and, you know, you had the, the, the like older the, feminists. The responses to yeah, the Yeah, the responses. And I think it really did have a lot to do with where they were placed, not necessarily that people were wrong or right, but it's definitely a reflection of a certain dynamics of what you have grown up with. And so the older feminists who kind of were fighting this puritanical censorship kind of world, they were like, oh, this is so not a big deal, you know, like suck it up, you know, and kind of like what older activists are like, like we've dealt with a lot of shit and you are just complaining. Well, I mean, in a way, because they've kind of dealt with like the worst of it. So, I mean, they've kind of cleared through the worst and then you've got the younger generations who are coming through. And it's not that the things that they're dealing with are, I mean, in some ways they are lesser, but there are also things of which are maybe more submerged under the surface of what's happening within culture and society. I disagree. I think that what the younger generation are dealing with is not... I, I don't think you can compare what's better or worse, but I think it's... Oh, no, I mean, it's, I think you can. You've got women of whom won't give them the vote. You've no, got no, no, women no, no, of like, whom let me just, worse. Let me just finish. Right, let me just finish. What they're saying, the younger feminists are saying, is that we have now inherited the world that you've given us and we're happy that you've fought for these things but now we live in a sexually saturated society you know like we're not fighting puritanism or the fact that you have to get married or do this or this or that we're actually like where it's a commodity you know where sexual commodification is is the marketplace now and and it's overwhelming to be able to negotiate these interactions constantly and to live in such a sexually saturated society and these are the interactions that we have to negotiate from a very young age constantly so this is the world we're living in. These are the battles we're facing. And these are the kinds of conversations that we kind of want to move forward now beyond, like we want to take it beyond it, you know? And so I think that that's, that's the situation, you know, that we live in a different world and the women who fought those battles 
applaud to them, you know, but it's like it's time to take a back seat and to realise that you are no longer part of what are the movements happening now. It's not as relevant what you have to say because the world is different, you know, and I think that's something that people really do need to recognise that the world is different, it's changing, there are new problems, there are new issues and we need new solutions for them. So what worked then does not work now. What I think is really intensely fascinating about this episode is that it's not really necessarily so much about me too, but rather it's about the conversation that doesn't exist with everyone's opinions. And most of them are well-founded. People are coming at this with all sorts of life experience and perspectives that is really hard to discuss and navigate because people are coming to these issues and situations with their own perspectives. And you see this at the very beginning, and it's very Russian-like where the photographer character has one perspective as to how the date went. The women in his life have an entirely different. Now, the thing is that each of them probably aren't entirely 100% right. Like, there's probably various cues that people give, conversations, and people have just misinterpreted stuff. And people walk away from experiences with entirely different perspectives as to what took place. And the thing is that with someone like Me Too, where it's so emotive and people put so much of themselves into ideas such as this, it really becomes hard to have that conversation. Mm. And I think that's what's smart about this episode in that they really highlight the fact that, you know, it is hard to have the conversation. And they show not so much that people are coming to terms with that, but rather just depicting the fact that, you know, people are trying to position themselves within the storyline and why aren't people listening to me? Mm. There's a great scene towards the end of the episode where you've got the entire office who start arguing about me too, mm. but each of them are bringing in their own perspectives into it. So you've got that great line at the very top of the scene where the guy says, you work at a law firm and you don't care about due process, which I think is an important line because it's an umbrella statement for everyone working there because they're all lawyers and should be coming at it with a very specific uh, point of view. Now, this episode as a whole has a very firm view about due process, but I want to talk about that in just a moment. But this scene specifically has just everyone arguing about it, and it comes with people layering their own opinions into assholes to avoid, because people are coming out from their race perspective, people are coming out from their gender, and there's just all these various elements, and you don't see any resolution to it. It's just left there bare for people to say, hey, I look, I love you see what everyone's doing I love here. that scene where the, the, the black lawyer's like, it seems like it's black men that they're going after, and then the yeah. black woman opposite him looks at him going, don't you go there. You <laughs> no, know? Exactly. And I'm like, everyone's implicated. But I, they're both coming from different yeah, perspectives, both, which is I important. think that what's interesting is like the, the whole situation is that if you live in a society that's patriarchal or if you live in a society that is racist, like is it an equal balancing field and all, are all opinions equal and who has the right to be able to express themselves fully or have the floor or to be able to articulate what they feel or what their experience or pain is and so and how does that impact personal relationships in that how does society impact personal relationships like can you really have an equal relationship if society is patriarchal and what do women bring to interactions when they might go away feeling shitty about it but the other person has no idea because you weren't able to vocalize it because that's also a function of patriarchy not being able to vocalize your experience or your pain or being sidelined or being marginalized I've heard friends, you know, experiencing quite, you know, what they feel is really devastating racial marginalization, but they definitely feel like the people around them have no idea what they're doing or that they're doing it. And they come away feeling kind of really demoralized and flattened by it. And just so much energy being able to articulate this or articulate what's wrong. And it's actually quite a lot of energy and a lot of work, which is why 
the work of activism and writing is so important and, and to be able to have these conversations is important because people need to know what is uncomfortable for people or what is um, problematic, you know, to, to change behaviour because you, you look at art from 50 years ago and you're like, oh, my God, what a douchebag. But they didn't know they were, you know, like they honestly didn't know they were and um, it's just it's the hard work of people to be able to continually progress that. And, and I think listening is the key thing. Like, I just honestly feel like if it's an Indigenous issue, it's my job to just listen. I don't know enough about that. I need to give the floor to that person. I don't think it's about having a conversation. It's about giving the floor sometimes. If you know, For me here, Marissa is the person to listen to. She's the one who's dating. She's the one who's, you know, dealing with the sexual marketplace in a way that Diane maybe doesn't understand anymore. Or Maya, you know, because she's gay, she might that might be a whole other dynamic. So I do feel like Marissa is someone who would be centred here in terms of her experience. Yeah. Part of the broader problem isn't so much the different perspectives going on, but rather it's because society as a whole, and definitely in the US, definitely in Australia and a lot of other Western countries, sex education isn't really there for a lot of people to be able to vocalise their issues. So you've got two different perspectives, but with very little conversation, very little open forthright back and forth as to what each individual party is specifically after, the rules aren't really established. I hear from gay men of whom we'll talk about the fact that they don't really suffer many of these issues at all because part of the negotiation that takes place in the early stages of that relationship is what are you looking for? How can we both satisfy each other? Are you able to provide that satisfaction to me? If not, then, you know, you shake hands and you go separate ways. Okay, it's kind of interesting that straight people can't necessarily do it. I don't really know much in terms of women and gay relationships as to how they navigate that and whether that same navigation is necessarily required. But yeah, I mean, it's I think sex education is the huge issue here. But what I think the show is focusing on is maybe just a little bit more about, and you were kind of alluding to that a moment ago, with the how to have that conversation. Now, what the show positions itself as, and it's the viewpoint I generally have, is that it's very important to have these conversations, but it's important to have the conversations in the right venue with the right vetting and the right approach to be able to put it forward. Mm. So it's summed up right at the end with Diane, who's having a go at the creator of the website, and she said something along the lines of, next time you're doing it, make sure that you hire a lawyer and do your site right, Okay, which is kind of the overall thesis for what this uh, episode's trying to say. So what the show is actually dealing with is a couple of real life issues. And I think they were actually kind of scathing criticisms of a lot of the way that either these articles were published or really the reaction to them. So you've got a couple of main ones. So Assholes to Avoid, which is the fictional website in this, this is based off the real life uh, Google spreadsheet that was created in October 2017, the Shitty Men Media List. Mm -hmm. Now, this was created by a reporter named Moira Donegan, who works for the New Republic. And she had really created this list, and it wasn't for public publication. Rather, this was really just a list to be handed around to colleagues and friends sort of within media circles in New York, saying, hey, look, these are the guys to avoid. And it was kind of just a sophisticated way of the whisper network that she believes is always in place. The problem with the list, though, is that the list suddenly got a fair bit of attention that landed in a few reporters' hands, and they wanted to report on it. So they were going to publish the list, and there were a lot of names that came out on the list, and there were a lot of people fired from their jobs. And it even comes down to the point where Moira Donegan, she hadn't publicly published this. This was really something to be just sort of shared around. She didn't even want her involvement in the list to be known widely. 
she was just creating it as a service to her friends to have that conversation internally, private conversations. But then suddenly her name becomes public, she becomes associated with this list, and becomes the face of the list. It reaches the point where Harper's Bazaar were going to publish a story about her and publish her name and her involvement in the list. And suddenly she's freaked out because suddenly she's then going to become the subject of doxing and all sorts of other horrible things that can happen to women in a position like that. So she ended up taking the power into her own hands and went public herself and said, hey, look, this is something I did and tried to control the narrative. But, you know, it's kind of, it's one of these things where she created this list as a private thing, suddenly it went public, but that's beyond her control. Yeah, I think it's slightly unfair of the show to really approach this storyline with the idea of a publication like that from the perception that this is actually a public website. So it's about a publisher who's gone out there publicly to say, hey, look, these are the men to avoid. Mm. And I think it's maybe unfair on the shitty men list that they've kind of done that. They've kind of uh, chopped off that list at the knees to a certain degree because that was created with a private intent as opposed to the public site depicts in this episode. Now, if you think about it in a real world context, it's unfair for the narrative conceit of this episode. It makes perfect sense. It lets them have the conversations they want to have. Hey, I'm going to say what Muslims always get told. <laughs> if you didn't yeah. do anything wrong, there's nothing to be afraid of, right? Like, you you it's okay for you to be surveilled and policed and unfairly tracked. But I mean, maybe I'm going on a different tangent. But you different hear that everyone and that's kind of garbage because and the people saying you've got nothing to be con- concerned about so are the people things. in control. These yes. are the people who are politicians. These yes. are people running big tech companies. Mm-hmm. These there is are, something to be afraid of. Yeah. But, and um, everyone should be afraid yeah, of all of these things. And I things. think that what you, what you made was a really good point in that, you know, when people don't have power or they're coming up against systems where it's going to be really hard to report things and it's just such a struggle and it's not worth it. Sometimes, you know, if you're a freelancer or if you're someone, you know, a, a group of women or people who don't have that much power, the best protection you can give is just to each other, just to say, oh, you know, just avoid that or this person's a good person to work with. And we've all in all different forms been, you know, whether it comes to dating or whether it comes to the workplace, you know, you ask around, you say, oh, what's this person like to work with or are they good to work with? Because that's sometimes the only protection that that you have against, you know, a situation where you could find yourself in a in a, in a position where you're under someone's power and, um, you know, you can be subject to things that could be really, really traumatic, whether it's bullying or harassment or other forms of unfairness or just it doesn't have to be sexual harassment. It could just be be like knowing that, you know, that's that's a crazy person or that person is not an easy person to work with. And these are the ways in which, you know, people help each other if they don't have a lot of power in different industries and in different um, in different communities when when they don't really have access to those dispute resolution mechanisms like the law or the police, which which can be really um, laborious and difficult and not always um, accessible to those people. So I just I just do find it quite unfair in, in the way in which these helping mechanisms, these private helping mechanisms which I see migrant communities use often because they know that society is not going to often be, be of use to them, you know, in terms of policing and stuff. So they're like, you know, this is the person to avoid or these are the streets to go on or this is the person who's going to help you or this is where you can get a job because they need to do that to help each other because they, they have to create their own community to, to empower each other because they don't really feel like they can they can trust um, the wider society. Yeah. The other real world thing that this episode is really playing off quite heavily, and I think this is really the inspiration for a lot of the messaging within this episode, is that a lot of it seems to be based heavily off that Babe.com article about Aziz Ansari. 
So if you remember that storyline, essentially it was from the perspective of a woman who had a very bad date with disease and published, you know, a blow-by-blow account. That's probably not the right phrase to use here, <laughs> but I'm going for it anyway. Uh, use this account as to, you know, this horrible date. And as a result, like, Aziz was kind of pillarized to a certain degree. So he didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but there was certainly a lot of behaviors in it of which, you know, are uncomfortable. A lot of women saw the story and reflected quite heavily on their own experience. And I think that the issue to maybe think about with this one is that Babe.com published the story and the criticism they got from a lot of people was that, you know, this is kind of a personal encounter, which wasn't really particularly great, but he didn't do anything illegal. He didn't really do anything that was worthy of being named and shamed in an article like this. Okay, and there's various levels of power involved, and I don't really want to delve too heavily into it. But essentially, you've just got this public figure of whom is taken down as a result of a public-facing article, which is out there to really shame him. Now, Aziz Ansari, since then, hasn't been seen in public up until actually this week. So he started performing again. There were a few shows at the Comedy Cellar where he just popped in and started doing a few unexpected sets. So he came through and did that. I don't think he actually addressed anything with the article. He just kind of did comedy and tried to sort of, you know, so that, using this as a position to rebuild his career moving forward. But this is kind of what the episode's really talking about, which is that idea of a public-facing list versus private conversations, because a lot of these people may not necessarily have committed crimes, but they are still being shamed to a certain degree. So if we go back to that shitty men in media list, you've got a number of people of whom lost their jobs. Now, the reason a lot of them lost their jobs was to do with sexual harassment taking place in the workplace. Okay, and fair enough, they should absolutely lose their jobs. And this, uh, like the list going public, was kind of like the impetus for that conversation to take place, which exposed like their behavior in the workplace. But if they kind of just dates gone wrong and people of whom aren't really necessarily respecting those minor boundaries that are in place, I'm not talking about like proper sexual assaults, but rather I'm just talking about, you know, there'll be, there was the woman in this episode who talked about like the tongue in the ear and, you know, things like that. Like it's just uncomfortable, bad date stuff and people feel gross about it. So many... And you hear about young young men these days of whom have been raised on a diet of just seeing pornography and seeing that's how you behave in the bedroom, where it's not. And it's that thing where I think young women, if okay, we're looking at a situation where it's mostly young men doing this. So I don't want to put it on young women that they have to do this, but I think maybe they do have to. And it's establishing the boundary saying, no, that's not acceptable to me. Okay, you've seen that in movies, sure, but that's not really how this works. I don't like that. I think that needs to be said, but it needs to be that conversation happening between everyone. But the conversations aren't existing because of bad sexual education, but also because of this thing where conversations don't really exist anymore. And but they're is... also really, really uncomfortable. Like, think but about it. Even in this, uncomfortable. in this podcast, like, we're talking about race and we're talking about sex and, you know, it's a bit dicey. Like, it's very intense. It sometimes makes me feel anxious. Like, yeah. I have to really talk about my experiences or I have to, like, talk about things that I haven't talked about with other people, you know. It's very intense. And it's very stressful, you know, and so how to have these conversations, which touch on topics that are very sensitive in a way that can bring society forward. You know, I, I don't think that is an easy thing. I don't yeah. think it's going to be without complications. You're being uncomfortable. I mean, we're talking about things of which are socially accepted issues, which people are concerned about. You think about like a Me Too situation, it's predominantly men of whom are making women feel uncomfortable and there's sexual assaults and all sorts of other things. It does happen the other way around where there are... I mean, in two ways here. I mean, some women of whom are aggressive and create environments where men feel uncomfortable and are put into positions where, you know, they're doing things they don't necessarily want to do. It's certainly oh, the minority. Can I, can, I get it, can I get in on that environment? <laughs> 
No, but it, it certainly does happen, okay? But, I mean, because it's not necessarily part of the social discourse that everyone's really discussing right now, that kind of gets marginalised to a certain degree, but does exist. But then you've also got the other thing where, and there's some very canny casting in this, uh, you look at situations involving uh, gay men, of whom some of them are being pressured in sexual environments. We talked about at the beginning where, you know, there's a lot of negotiation that takes place, but where there's a power imbalance. So there's some specific casting, which I think speaks very well to this, the gentleman who plays the accountants of Diane's is Anthony Rapp. Now, Anthony Rapp, he was a teenage actor. He's in one of my favourite kids' films of all time, which was, we knew it here in Australia as a night out on the town, but globally it's known as Adventures in Babysitting. And he's this really funny, charming, like, teen actor. And he got involved in theatre and then met Kevin Spacey. And if you remember when the Kevin Spacey story broke, it's because Anthony Rapp gave an interview where he talked about being a teenager, being pressured into sexual situations with Kevin Spacey. All that story came out, and then suddenly you've got him in this episode, which is about Me Too and sort of he said, she said sort of conversations. But he's like this young gay kid of whom was suddenly placed into this massive power imbalance with like an older person. Now, that can happen in straight relationships as well with, you know, like you hear about, say, teachers with students or just, you know, family, friends, like those imbalances happen regardless of gender and sexuality. But I think there's just something very pointed with having Anthony Rapp in this episode. Mm. Uh, Anthony Rapp, just from a side point as well, he is part of the CBS All Access family where the show is streamed in the US because he's also now on Star Trek Discovery, which is the other big CBS All Access show. So it's kind of cool they brought him over for this. And there's, they don't really feature him in the storyline, but I think his presence in the episode is definitely pointed. Yeah, I mean, and I think you can't really talk about this without understanding power and history. Although I think, you know, you made an example that, oh, you know, women act in this way, but it's in a minority. There are bad things that happen and individuals do bad things and they definitely need to be called out. But what makes it a social issue is when there are structural issues involved. So when power and history frame certain groups over others for a very long time, I think that that's what makes something a dynamic that needs to be interrogated or needs to be challenged. Not to say that we don't live in a world of individuals all doing various things and various things that are bad or good, but what makes it an issue on a bigger level is what are the structural issues involved here? What are the things that are embedded in our consciousness in terms of people in power or legislation that has framed a certain group in a certain way? Like, I think it's about a certain group politics as well that we need, kind of need to constantly assess how that's relating to our interactions in society. So that's what I think makes it different and makes it, I think, uh, something that I think is more important and more um, a more of an urgent issue to address. Yeah. Now, we probably just need to wrap this up because we're right towards the end of our a lot of good fight conversation for the week because we can't talk about the good fight outside oh. of this 35-minute window. Oh, yes. Uh, but very quickly, we've got a bit of resolution here. So at the end of the episode, we find out, and this taps into one of my huge passion stories from the last couple of years discussed in a previous episode. It's the idea that this lawsuit that they're discussing to do with the photographer who's uh, aggrieved is being funded by a Peter Thiel type figure, someone of whom is coming in to affect a legal judgment or to see somebody specific pay in order for their own uh, revenge, effectively. So Peter Thiel, we know as the person who had a grievance against Gawker.com, ended up funding Hulk Hogan with his sex tape um, story and ended up getting a massive payout, brought down Gawker.com. Very similar thing happening in this episode. And you remember when we were talking about Peter Thiel the other week, I said, I wish they'd come back and uh, explore this a little bit more. They don't quite explore it, but they definitely give their own take on it. Uh, and we find out here that one of the two guys that have been funding a lot of cases for the law firm, Jerry Warshawski, 
is the guy's name. So he's the blonde guy Jer, of the two. Jer. 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 And you were saying earlier, like, his character's <laughs> trait is he doesn't swear. Yeah. Yeah. He's a bit awkward. But yeah, like, one of these two guys is the one that's actually funding this lawsuit to bring down the website <sighs> because he's apparently been uh, investigated and they're going to publish a story about him. So interesting. Yeah. When art and life get intertwined. Can well, I that's just... That's what this show's entirely I, about. It is. Can I just mention one lovely note uh, of the show at the end? Yeah. Um, how nice was it when Adrian came in and... Um, Everyone clapped for him and that little speech, I was really feeling it. You I know? disagree entirely. He's like, he came out with his We Are Family speech and I say those speeches are always complete bullshit when they come from the boss. Nah. No, when the boss comes out <laughs> saying we're all a family, but at the same time you're going to have, remember just like weeks ago, Luca was having issues where she thought she was being squeezed out because she's pregnant. Oh, good point. Like a family doesn't treat people like that. He's okay. a boss. These are employees. Now, people of whom are in lower positions of power, they may see themselves operating as within a family unit. But when a boss comes out and says, look, guys, we're all a family, that could not be greater BS than anything else. Okay. Well. The other thing that we just need to wrap up is the ongoing storyline with the shooting. We mm -hmm. find out who's responsible. You and I were discussing this earlier. You missed this moment. Like, you didn't quite catch that someone I, had been busted for the shooting. And what? <laughs> what? Uh, but anyway, it's like a sort of quick scene. But the thing that was difficult about it is we're watching the show week to week. I think the last, like, four or five episodes would benefit really well from a binge watch. And you also have that episode, the Golden Showers episode, which is kind of in the middle of the storyline, which I think maybe diminishes the reveal in this episode because it's four weeks ago. It's hard to remember exactly who this character was. So the character responsible is a police officer by the name of Officer Whitehead, and he's the guy that shot Adrian. He is also responsible for planting a gun and creating some false testimony that supposedly a black man had been running out of the building and had dropped the gun somewhere. If you remember back a couple of episodes, you had Jay's friend who was falsely imprisoned, and there was some police that were involved in planting a whole bunch of fake guns. Officer Whitehead was one of those guys. So he was the one that was really responsible for planting a gun, framing black men, much like Jay's friend, much like what he was doing here within this um, storyline with the Bastard. shooting of Adrian. And he's got a grievance against Adrian and the firm because they exposed the fact that he'd been involved in this activity. But that's like four weeks ago. It's hard to track it on mm. a week-to-week -week basis. I just, I just do not think it was something that the regular viewer would be able to pinpoint unless you were just, you know, an avid, avid viewer who just every frame you concentrated on. Like, I just felt like it was a bit random. Okay, my favourite moment of this week was right at the end as Diane and Kurt are getting back together. Kurt puts his cards on the table and says, Diane, let's do this properly. We've been doing our marriage of, uh, as a half-assed attempt effectively. You know, we've been living in separate places, been trying to maintain our careers while also having this marriage. He says he's taking a job at the FBI. He's moving to Chicago full-time. He wants to get a house together. Like, this is kind of the reconciliation of their thing. Mm. But there's still one thing that he needs to tell Diane in order to make this, you know, this marriage work, who he voted for at the election. <laughs> and, and it's I like, this was, was like a the deal final breaker. thing. That was it's a deal breaker. Absolutely a deal breaker. And it's the last thing Diane needed for full empowerment because she is now an empowered person. Remember, she shuts down that laptop to shut down the ridiculous Trump story that was playing on her laptop. Okay, so like that's her saying, look, I'm completely in control of myself now, but in order for a marriage to work, you need to give over part of yourself to somebody. And in order for her to do that, he had to come to her to a certain degree and reveal that he didn't vote for Trump. And he didn't, so they were able to get together. But he did vote for Ted Cruz, uh, yeah, which well, I would say is almost I mean... just as bad, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a nice moment. We've reached the end of another good fight. We've only got two weeks left to go. 
Wow. Yeah, it's come close God, to the end here. Is everyone, are you going to miss us, aren't you? I miss you. I don't even know when I'm going to hear your opinions. <laughs> you just hear them in the office all day. Um, okay. But yeah, this is the end of another Good Fight podcast. We'll be back next week talking about the second last episode of the season. Sarah Malik, people can find you on Twitter. Where do they find that? I'm at Sarah B. Malik. And um, yeah, hit me up. And that's on a very popular website, twitter.com. You can find me on that same popular website at the Dan Barrett. If you enjoy SBS content, like follow SBS on the various social platforms. Mm. On Facebook, where there is SBS Australia. On Twitter, at SBS. We're all there. If you like this podcast, there's a couple of other podcasts to check out. I am absolutely wrapped with the Handmaid's Tale podcast. The Handmaid's Tale is a very rich text that I think there's a lot going on in each episode. It's hard to know exactly what's going on and you can watch it at a surface level but there's a lot of little things that take place of which are all exposed by our fellow colleagues here on their Handmaid's Tale podcast called Eyes on Gilead. We've got Fiona Williams, we've got Natalie Hambly, we've got Sana Kadar. Each week they all talk about the Handmaid's Tale and they will point out things that you have not noticed that make it such a richer experience watching that show. Great podcast, and it's a fantastic podcast. The conversations are great. Not as good as ours, but, you know, they're still pretty good. Uh, Also, if you enjoy the sound of my voice, and maybe you need to see a therapist if that's the case, uh, Batman Land. I talk about the 1960s Batman TV show. Uh, Not really ridiculous detail. Basically, make a whole bunch of jokes about it and try to get to the heart of what a 1960s pop culture experience was all about. Uh, But if you like Batman, or even if you don't, take a listen. Give me the numbers. Just download the thing. Justify the podcast existence. Sarah, it's been a pleasure. We'll be back next week. Keep fighting a good fight. See you next week. This podcast and its contents are not endorsed or sponsored by CBS Studios Incorporated or The Good Fight. 